So welcome back to Shop Talk with the Sheriff. I'm Sheriff Gregory Tony here at the Broward Sheriff's Office. As you all know, I frequently bring on spectacular guests, community activists, service people, not only just BSO personnel, but partnerships. Partnerships are important for us. Uh, it's vital for the success that we have. It's vital for being able to engage with the community and give the people what they want. And one of our strong partners comes by way of Hispanic Unity, a organization that has been part of Broward County for quite some time, dedicated towards enhancing the rights and capabilities of our migrant community uh, and bringing Hispanic and Latinos in a position of power, giving them an opportunity to expand their quality of life here in Broward County and within the United States. And no one has been more formidable, no one has led uh, that initiative more than the great Josie Bacaya. Uh, she is the current president of Hispanic Unity of Florida. Uh, prior to joining Hispanic Unity of Florida, she was the vice president and marketing director at the Sun Sentinel Company. She has spent over 25 years of her career uh, at the Miami Herald um, and was the vice president of marketing there as well. Uh, I always like to give people an opportunity to introduce themselves and speak a little bit about themselves before we start diving into some of the deep questions. And so without further ado, um, I have to say this before I even introduce you, just looking at you. Josie is a friend. Uh, when I first came into the sheriff's office, uh, she stepped up as a mentor. She stepped up uh, to see what she could do to support a new sheriff who really was passionate in, in trying to find direction on how can he support the community. So this is a special guest uh, here today. So Josie. Thank you, Sheriff. Thank you so much for the invitation and for the opportunity to talk about um, the big passion in my life, which is Hispanic Unity of Florida and, and the work that we do and the clients whose lives I know we've touched and changed. So thank you, delighted to be here. And I gave just a quick summary of some of your experiences. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the other you know, platforms and committees and things that you've been involved in, not just here in Broward County, just throughout your career, because I think all those things, and I can read this extensive resume out, uh, but many of these things highlight how your personal commitment has been to serving other people. I'm grateful you did not go through that whole list. <laughs> um, uh, actually, community service has been an integral part of my life uh, from the very beginning. And, and, and I, I learned that very early on. Um, for example, I was very fortunate as a four-year-old to be adopted by retirees from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Hmm and who taught me how to speak English and eat white bread and, and bob for apples. And uh, Mrs. Bernstein was critical in my life in elementary school. And, and then I saw my, my family and how they treated others and how others were such an integral part of their life. So um, for me, community service, uh, public service has always been um, critical, deeply involved um, throughout high school. And then um, became part of, um, of a board when I was 16. And I think I've been, since that time, um, I've been on more than 35 different boards. Um, and now I'm, I'm really uh, honored to be involved locally with Career Source of Broward, Greater Fort Lauderdale Alliance, uh, Truist Advisory Board, but also with Unidos US, which is the, the country's um, largest um, 
uh, civil rights and advocacy organization for Latinos and, and I'm on their national board and I joined that recently. And one of the most proud efforts that I'm currently involved in is I co-founded the Children of Immigrant Families Coalition um, and, and most recently also just completed work with um, Senator uh, Nan Rich, uh, now known as Commissioner Nan Rich, working with the census. So I, I, I get involved in only efforts that I care about. And I'm, I'm very adamant about that um, or in, in organizations that really want me and that will give me a voice and a platform and that will listen. Well, I, I don't think anyone's not going to want you and everyone's going <laughs> to get their hands on you. And look, if for those who are listening, you know, it crystal clear, uh, the level of commitment and service to people, not just communities, but to people, the individual. Uh, and so we're excited to have you here. And just a little side joke, you talk about uh, Senator Nan Rich and commission, now Commissioner Nan Rich. I just call her your majesty. Uh, she's had so many different titles. I, I, I can't keep up anymore. But let's let's dive into Hispanic unity. Let's talk a little bit about what the organization does, how long it's been around, and hey, where are we headed? Where are we headed with Hispanic unity? What can what else are you uh, looking to see accomplished over the next year? We're in a an interesting position right now. Um, locally, I would tell you that um, we're challenged because when people think about immigrants, they immediately think about Miami. And, and forget that Broward County has 34% of its population is made up of foreign born individuals. That's 600,000 people um, that we have the largest Haitian community, um, larger than Miami-Dade right here in Broward County, that we have one of that we're home to one of the largest diasporas of Caribbean born individuals also in the country that um, we are known for our expat Colombian and Venezuelan communities. So Broward seems to be overlooked often, uh, yet we have an extremely rich and diverse group of, of immigrants. And, and Sheriff, the, the, the challenge too is that money doesn't flow from foundations as much to immigrant serving organizations. So we're at a, a real interesting period right now where I, I think that nationally we are hopeful that that things might change for our immigrant communities and a lot of our work is not only with specific families and a, approaching it as a as a holistic two family approach or two generation approach but we're also have really ramped up over the last five years and i would tell you the last two years specifically our work in the policy and advocacy area, because we see that the change uh, can be made both at the at the family unit level, but also to really scale our impact, it has to be made at the systemic level. So that has led us to create and be part of more than a dozen coalitions working on everything from food insecurity to housing inequity issues. And we're very excited about how our organization is growing in that area as well. You, you know, you touch on something and I was really happy to hear you uh, mention that you're looking at several generations of how do you impact not just a, an individual at the time, not just a mother, but also the daughter and the son, that whole family tree, because 
I think oftentimes people forget when you're talking about long-term sustainable change and impact, especially when we're talking about how we are dealing with um, expanding diversity, cultural awareness, opportunities uh, for so many people who find themselves migrating here, you can't limit that range of thought just for one singular generation because then it expires or then it gets left behind. And I, I think that is just as fundamental uh, as you described all the different programs and initiatives, but the mindset behind who are we targeting, not an individual, an individual, but several generations within every family and every household. You know, let me ask you this, <clears throat> you know, from a legislative standpoint, um, you know, so much is controlled by, by the law, so much is controlled by policy. You know, what core policies uh, have you been working on, let's say, and, and I know you're busy, but over the last three years that is starting to show some type of uh, or bear some fruit from some some change, or you, you see it going to be strengthening up pretty soon. Um, policy work is um, is very interesting because you have to take a really really long view. Um, last year's legislative session uh, for us, we were very excited because we were able to partner. We weren't the lead, but we were able to partner and really um, elevate. Uh, the need for health services within schools. And that was uh, a very significant piece of legislation. Unfortunately, the pandemic hit and the kids aren't being able to benefit from that. But when we are back to in-school services, the fact that, that we will now have uh, much needed medical support and health services for children within the schools, that was huge. Another win was that we're very grateful to Senator Rubio uh, one of the things that, that happened uh, during a, a number of the CARES Acts that, that passed is that immigrant families, particularly if they, you were in a mixed family, so you had a U.S. You had US um, citizens in the family, but you also had perhaps someone who did not have legal status, they were left out completely out of any of the stimulus dollars. Wow. So we were, we again, through many coalitions, both at the local, state, and, and, and even nationally, uh, were very effective in that the last stimulus package included those mixed families. So that was a really significant win. So absolutely, they're here and there. Um, we've got, uh, we have all of our policy items um, at, uh, huffempowermentcenter.org, that's H-U-F, empowermentcenter.org. And what we did this year, Sheriff, is that we, we actually split them between the urgent needed policies related to COVID-19 plus all the other policy items and agenda items that may take us, quite frankly, um, not only this year, but beyond to, to, to come to fruition. You know, one of the things I, uh, I throughout this entire COVID crisis, I've been in communication with a bunch of different, you know, subgroups and committees and task force uh, as to what can we do to help mitigate the spread of the virus. And early on, and it holds true to this day, there were statistics provided that showed almost 80 percent of the people that were being hospitalized at one point uh, were people of color. And, I, and if I get this right, I believe it was about 60 percent were African-American or black folks. And then the other you know, significant jump there that came in was in the upper 20 percentile. So here we are, uh, two different areas that we, you just expanded on between uh, the Caribbean community, the Hispanic and Latino community uh, being impacted and devastated by COVID. You, you know, what things um, outside of what you just talked about uh, have you been able to do to help help these families and help these people 
who are suffering, and then they're, they have the concern about citizenship, and then at the same time, health care. That's always, you know, an alarming issue for those who are, you know, in that circle. Absolutely, and you're right, Sheriff. Um, I think people people of color have, have um, been at the front line. Not only are they literally in the front lines of, of our essential workers, but at the front line of both um, Coming, becoming sick with COVID and then having the most challenges. So we've been working on a lot of issues related to that. I just shared with you some of the, the policy pieces. We've really pushed for at the policy level, the, the world of eviction has been really a big issue. And early on, we, we decided that our focus would be on emergency services. So it would be around health, food, and housing. So related to that, working on trying to assist with um, access to food in many ways. So not only are we working at the policy level, we're helping hundreds of family apply for and access uh, food stamps where we spent, um, our team was able to give um, nearly a quarter of a million dollars for rental assistance. Awesome. And we're ready to, and we're poised to do another 200,000, which we just received. And almost 100% of those dollars go right back to, to families, not only with rental assistance, but also uh, utilities, et cetera. We created a website in Spanish and English. One of the things that, that we discovered um, Sheriff, is that a lot of the information was not being made available in Spanish to clients. Mm -hmm. So we created a website that we still we still have. It's called HuffSafety.org that we still update on on a regular basis. We're now working with a team actually um, with vaccine access. One of the things we discovered very quickly is that um, something that was a good done for the right reasons, which was to, to limit people outside of Florida from accessing the vaccine has now hurt people that are might be homeless or uh, formerly incarcerated or immigrants who don't have a valid, if you will, photo ID. So we're working with a whole group of individuals. We hope to work with you and your team to figure out how to do a how to create a municipal ID that can be used not only for that but even for um, the housing fund uh, funds that are going to be distributed. So those are, I mean, you, you brought up you brought up a very good uh, part of a discussion I had the, a few days ago with Commissioner Honus related to uh, getting an ID. Getting, I figured you were when you start talking about it, about getting an ID program for just to expand for those who are listening. You know, oftentimes as a law enforcement officer, even our as our uh, fire services out here, when we engage with the community uh, that suffers from homelessness or mental health care, there's always an issue of identifying who the individual is, and it takes up time of service. It means we have to almost do these mini investigations on scene to determine who these people are, uh, where they're from, tracking down social security numbers, uh, confirming their IDs and, and whether or not their licenses are valid, et cetera. And it takes time. And so, so one of the things that's being considered that Josie's talking about, the county's looking at, and we're looking to partner up with them on this, is to put a mechanism in place that provides uh, a level of identification, an ID card that can be confirmed, validated, and we can verify instantly, not only just for law enforcement and first responder services, but Josie would agree 
even for just getting access to try uh, to get baseline health care, uh, to get uh, a job, employment access. All these things to are fundamental. To get a vaccine. To get a vaccine during a time where there's a world uh, pandemic that's killing so many people. The idea that you couldn't get the necessary health care because you don't have a small plastic card with your name and face on it uh, speaks to the importance of what we need to do. You know, another thing I want to talk about that you've really tackled is the pro bono immigration clinics and how that is impacting kind of along the lines of some of the stuff we already talked about. But can you tell the community about what that program is and why you pushed that and, and got that going? Currently, what is happening, and I mentioned that when people think about immigrants, they think of Miami, they, they tend to forget Broward County. And we most recently, over the last three or four years, we've been working with a phenomenal group of, of individuals, all of whom are vol volunteers. And we, we all come in on a, on a Saturday and we'll do maybe four to six clinics, uh, free clinics in Broward County every year. And these are what we call legal clinics. So they're, they're no charge clinics. And we partnered with Americans for Immigrant Justice, a phenomenal organization out of uh, Miami, Catholic Charities Legal Services, uh, Legal Aid Service of Broward County. And, and the original uh, effort also included the, the Hispanic Bar and the Caribbean Bar. And many of those um, attorneys still come and donate their, their time. Most recently, we've, we have Nova Southeastern University's law school students as partners and even the city of Hollywood, excuse me, Oakland Park as partners. Awesome. And what, what we do is we provide an intake and, and provide at least minimal 30 minute, uh, minutes of legal advice once we review the intake. And the issue could be everything from, um, I'm trying to, assist my spouse to become a US citizen to I'm a, a dreamer. So I'm a, 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 a young person brought to this country by their parents. How do I apply for the deferred action? Or I have temporary protected status. What's happening there to I'm undocumented, what do we do? And what is really powerful about this clinic is that it is it provides legal advice at no cost so that people do not have a false sense of what is possible. So they have a realistic uh, knowledge of what they can and can't do uh, before they, they spend thousands of dollars um, on attorneys that may or may not assist them. So we're super proud of that. We've helped um, hundreds of individuals most clinics that we do will serve 60 to 70 on any given Saturday. And now in, in lieu of being able to do those in person, um, we were providing referrals to American for Immigrant Justice and Legal Aid and Catholic Charities where they're providing the support by phone at this point. Are you capitalizing on Zoom as well? The whole world's kind of gone to the Zoom. All the time. Um, one of our biggest programs, and believe it or not, uh, the, the number two, following emergency assistance, the number two level of calls that we're receiving are for citizenship and immigration support. And we're talking about 500 calls a week. Oh, wow. uh, we pivoted 21, we had 21 citizenship centers between Miami-Dade and Broward County that we've pivoted and are now providing those citizenship services online. 
And most recently, we just had someone become a US citizen originally from Venezuela, and she's now living in Alaska. So our footprint has a footprint has expanded since COVID-19. We're actually helping people from throughout the United States. And on any given week, we'll have um, up to 800 people participating in our citizenship program. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll transition into uh, kind of another segment here. It, here we are. It's March, right? So it's Women's Month. Um, and it's a time for us to recognize and look at all our different powerful women who's come through and, um, and whether it be this community, whether it be in this country, or whether it be abroad and the impact that they have had. And you're walking, talking uh, history uh, for all the different accomplishments and things that you've done for all the different folks out there. And this is not uh, a gender based question. Uh, this isn't for just women. This is for men. Uh, as well, what would you recommend uh, with all your years of experience for those who want to follow in the path of service? Uh, if you had to give them some little, you know, one or two liners, uh, I'm sure they want to hear just as I wanted to hear when uh, I first had a chance to meet you and pick your brain and, and understood that you were a trailblazer and I wanted to be the same in the sense of doing things different and diversifying this agency uh, like we've never seen before. What, what would you have for him, Josie? Uh, you're making me think. Uh, I, I would I would say that above all, um, know what you stand for. What are your values? And that eventually becomes your legacy. That also tells you what you don't want to do and who you don't want to become. And it can drive, and it has for me, driven not only my professional life, but I think my whole life. I recently had to speak to a group of um, emerging marketing people um, from a, across the country. And I, I told them to, to, I suggested to them to look at their, their life in a very holistic way and not just professionally, to look at what their goals were as far as family, uh, friends, faith, and faith could be spirituality, does not have to be church, mm -hmm. uh, fitness, finances, and I added another one. I added force for good. Um, where are you going to make an impact in your community? And I, one of the biggest inspirations for me which is what I plan to be doing once I retire is, uh, was a late congressman and civil rights icon, John Lewis, who, who said, you know, you need to make good trouble. And what are you going to do to challenge the system to be more inclusive and just and equitable? How can you really be a force for good? Not about putting people down, but about lifting individuals and families up. That's right. I think that's a, a, a wonderful segue to kind of close out. But I will say one other thing. Uh, for those of you who've never had a chance to meet this powerful woman, the woman and hear her over the air now, um, she is all of a good four foot plus and some change. And one of the most powerful individuals I've ever met in my life. And so size does not matter. Um, the strength of your heart can be non-compromising and have you move mountains as Josie has done for this community and in this country. 
So, my friend, I, I have to say thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing some time. Thank, thank you, Sharon. For all. Thank you for all that you've done here and for challenging me early, for holding me accountable, uh, and being a good voice of reason when I needed it. Uh, so, for those who join us, I say thank you for joining me on Shop Talk with the Sheriff. Remember to follow me on Instagram at BSO Sheriff Tony. It's not a stunt double, it's me. Uh, you can also subscribe to the podcast so that you get our alerts for every new episode. And in the meantime, stay safe, be humble, and love somebody a little bit more than you love yourself. And Sheriff Tony signing off. <laughs>